0: I'll be reading this morning from Revelation chapters 4 and 5. After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and rumblings. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever— The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the back, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped.
1: Well, Tom and Carol will be back um, later this week, and Tom will begin teaching again next Sunday morning, so I know you're looking forward to that. Uh, But for this morning, we have um, before us these chapters in Revelation 4 and 5 to finish up uh, our series through the seven letters, these first a handful of chapters in the book of Revelation, and one of the things that um, we could observe about the the churches uh, mentioned in these letters is that, in many ways, their um, their their situation, their societal setting, was um, very tenuous. Seemingly, to them, there there are some points of similarity with our own situation uh, today in the United States. There is a, a sense of uncertainty, a pervasive sense of vulnerability. Uh, In April earlier this year, the New York Times ran a headline saying that uh, suicide rates in the U.S. have surged to a 30-year high. That article cited a sociologist, Robert Putnam, who used the word hopelessness to describe the American situation. Uh, You've maybe seen the uh, campaign ad that Donald Trump is running uh, before the video you actually want to watch on YouTube. Um, the idea of the ad is, make America safe again. Uh, and then, and then the, the ad goes on with this, these kind of conjured up the in, images of, uh, of an America that if Hillary is elected, there will be no borders, will become the doormat of other world powers, unemployment will skyrocket. Uh, and the Clinton campaign seems to think that the situation is equally dire just for other reasons. If you elect Donald Trump, you're voting for a misogynistic, xenophobic America. This is h- historical regression. It's almost as if both campaigns are intentionally leveraging this sense of vulnerability and uncertainty that we have as a society, that, that we're unraveling at the seams. And the fact that they seem to leverage this idea only deepens our concerns. It almost seems like there's a disappearance of civility in society, And social media, of course, amplifies the problem uh, because so many people are vitriolic online in a way that they would never be in person. It's like how we slam on the horn at someone who accidentally cuts us off on the road, uh, forgetting that there's an actual person behind the wheel and that all people make mistakes. And of course, if we were to meet them face-to-face, we'd be the nicest little Christians we could possibly be. But somehow when a car or the internet separates us, from human interaction, we lose that sense of humanness. It's like we become horrible people. And so social media, if we're not careful, um, can feed the division, the anger, and this kind of apocalyptic fear of where society is headed. But Christians ought to be able to live differently than all this because we have a transcendent hope. You know one of the one of the things that we see reading those seven letters to the churches is that Jesus calls them to authentic love, to enduring faithfulness, to godly discernment, to all these wonderful qualities, but more than anything else, uh, we read those seven letters together and it's obvious that the church is supposed to be a worshiping and a witnessing community, worshiping God and witnessing to the reality of Jesus Christ through uh, clear teaching about who he is through good and clean living that accords with that teaching and speaking of jesus to those outside the christian community Remember the image used for these churches seven lampstands the church is supposed to be a witnessing community And the, and the churches were supposed to strive for all of these things in the midst of opposition And a future that seemed full of threat to them But how can the church maintain its status as a worshiping and witnessing community in the midst of threat and being forced to the fringe of society. Well, those seven letters are sandwiched between these two visions that John gives the church. The vision of Jesus in chapter one and the vision that John sees in chapter four and five and we're now seeing with him of of the throne room where God is on the throne. And so the future of the church is absolutely dependent on a clear vision of Jesus and of God on his throne. So this morning we consider this vision in detail. The the vision of the throne room breaks down into two main parts. First, there's the vision of the Almighty on his throne. And then second, there's the vision of the Lamb who is once slain, now worthy. But this this is good news from someone who saw the end of all things, and this is what he saw. The eternal throne is occupied. So let's look first at the Almighty on his throne. Look again at verses 1 and 2. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Here John is referring back to the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. So Jesus says to John, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Jesus actually greets John at the doorway of heaven and says to him, come on in here and I'm going to show you what happens next. And again, John says, immediately I was in the spirit, just as with that first vision. And, And in the spirit, this is what John sees. And the first thing he sees is the most important part of this vision. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, think of the encouragement that that would have been to those seven churches. You remember the church in Pergamum, Jesus said to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Or Philadelphia, who had barely any strength left, but they were holding on. Or Smyrna, the church of people who were being forced into economic and social obscurity. And to these churches, John now rallies them and proclaims, there's an eternal throne, and it's occupied. And then the whole of chapters 4 and 5 describes this throne room vision that John has, and A similar thing happens here as happened with that vision back in chapter one that John barely has words to describe what he's seeing so he resorts to poetic imagery uh, to try to capture the magnificence of it. The one who is seated on the throne, he says, is like jasper and carnelian, these these deep red minerals. And then there's a rainbow like radiating green emeralds around the throne and and the floor of the throne room is like an ocean of crystal glass. Then encircling this central throne. There are 24 thrones of, of elders, these elders who are from all over the world. And it's as as if the entire universe then is, is circling the throne, um, praising God for his magnificence and standing in awe of him. And just then there's this thrilling display of thunder and lightning and fire that comes roaring out from the throne. And that's the cue for the choir to start. It's a choir composed of those 24 elders, as well as these, these fantasy-like creatures, and a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a human with six wings and eyes all around. This is like the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, with fireworks, you know, the thundering music, the incredible light shows, in those displays, they're trying to create this overwhelming sense, this kind of over-the-top, extravagant experience of color and light and sound that, that leaves you speechless. You watch it on TV, and, and you're, you're felt, you're, you feel overwhelmed. Imagine being there, enveloped in that experience, caught up in it and, and participating in it. And the culmination of this incredible show is the music. So there are five short songs in chapters 4 and 5. There are two about the Almighty on his throne in chapter 4, and then two more about the Lamb who was slain in chapter 5, and then there's one concluding chorus to to both of them. And the hymns make explicit the point of the whole vision, that God is seated on his throne, that the Lamb is worthy because of their sovereignty and holiness. So look at this song in chapter 4, verse 8. The first one, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What are the main features of God that this song points to? His holiness. He is almighty and he is eternal. You know, there, there are some attributes of God that we prefer over others. We enjoy certain attributes more because of the way they benefit us. We enjoy his goodness more than his power. We enjoy his mercy more than his justice because his, his mercy relieves us, whereas his justice punishes. And, and just as there are certain attributes of God that we enjoy more than others, there are certain attributes of God that he delights to honor more than others because of their excellence, And the attribute that God lifts up above all others most loftily, that the angels proclaim forever around the throne, is God's holiness. He is set apart. He's on the throne. Everyone else is around the throne. He alone is on it. So to say that God is holy is to say that he is one of a kind. He's unrivaled. He's set apart. So God is almighty and holy. And then look at this second song in chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This song speaks directly to God's activity. He is the powerful creator. The seven churches, along with all Christians, need to know these things, need to know God's character, that he is holy and eternal. He's transcendent above all things, and he's existing throughout all time. But the church also needs to know God's capabilities. He is creator. He made you. You're stamped with his logo. You belong to him. And uh, he is almighty. He's, he's powerful. He can vindicate you against any threat. can deliver you from any enemy. He's sovereign over all of your suffering. The church needs to know these things about God. His, his character, he's holy and eternal, and his capabilities. He's creator and almighty. And this has to define our understanding of God. If you believe in God, this is God you believe in. And then what is the response to seeing God like this? It's singing. Uh, The songs of heaven are a response to seeing God. And what the church does forever in heaven is what the church should be doing right now on earth. In, In many ways, this vision that John has The Christian gathering in heaven is is a model for Christians gathering here. When we gather to worship like we have this morning, uh, we are responding to these realities. We come together as God's people declaring that he is the creator, that we owe him our allegiance, and we bow together, uh, we bow our hearts before him, acknowledging we are his, he created us. And it's not just that we confess these things as true, but we respond by singing. And so when you encounter this vision of God, it should overflow in singing. People who have seen God sing about it. That's the consistent pattern of worship in the Old Testament. God reveals himself to his people or he acts on their behalf like in delivering them from Egypt. And they sing about it. And it's assumed in the New Testament that Christians sing. Paul says in Colossians, uh, "...let Christ dwell among you richly, singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together." Everywhere, Christians sing in response to God, and they sing together. And that singing is reverent celebration. Reverent because we're standing in awe of God. Celebration because of what God has done for us in Christ. So it's reverent celebration. And and, and what kinds of songs do we sing? You know, there's a lot that passes as Christian music, but um, we, we want to prioritize the stuff that that puts God's character and capabilities at the center of the song. And it's not only about the content, but also the quality. How should we sing? We should sing without reservation. You know, one of the things that's missing, completely missing from this throne room vision is reservation. The crowds and angels are completely unreserved and unashamed in their happy shouting. And we should sing to God in the same way. We should sing to God in the same way that we are to love God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so from the first row to the last row of our gathering each week, we want to sing with our whole hearts, giving every effort to do unreserved, reverent celebration. As one writer put it, Sunday morning should be a tiny foretaste of the exhilaration we feel singing. We will feel singing around the throne. So we should sing in response to this vision of the Almighty on his throne, but we should also learn to live in light of this reality. So this is where we need to recall again those seven churches that would have been reading this vision initially. Now, Laodicea was, was sitting on a pile of wealth, as we read last week, but, but the rest of these churches were, were slugging it out in the daily difficulties of life. Maybe you've seen in the news reports lately the the horrible persecution that's going on under ISIS in in Iraq and Syria. You know, Christians experiencing levels of suffering uh, beyond our experience, but maybe more similar to what the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 would have been facing. And and for any person, Christian or otherwise, to make sense of all the evil and suffering in the world. You know, we we create frameworks, we create ways of viewing the world through which to process things because we look at the world around us and what we see of humanity is that we are collectively impotent. You know, we, we sometimes say of a person that it's like they couldn't beat themselves out of a wet paper bag or, or something to that effect. That's true of humanity as a whole. We can't beat ourselves out of a wet paper bag. We are collectively impotent. And then beyond that, there's the seemingly indiscriminate tragedy and pain that people feel. And that's really the more universal problem, just suffering all over the place, brokenness in the world. And, and to maintain sanity in the midst of all this, we create frameworks for understanding things, generally held truths that we try to piece together to help us uh, perceive some sense of meaning in the midst of all of it. For the Christian, Revelation 4 and 5 shows us this greater reality that becomes our lens through which we see things to help us make sense of the world. It shows us a vision that protects us from despair. We should be cautious, especially in a campaign season, uh, to not develop an, an over-preoccupation with politics and foreign policy and economics, You know, while forgetting or not connecting those things to the greater spiritual realities. And then that disconnect between what's going on here and these eternal realities uh, slips out in a moment where we catch ourselves thinking or saying something like, I hate Donald Trump or I hate Hillary Clinton. Those words should never leave the mouth of a Christian. But that feeling highlights this disconnect between our perceptions of life and our understanding of reality. You shouldn't hate them. Your hope was never in them. The Christian hope transcends, not ignores, but transcends what goes on here. And Revelation as a whole pulls back the curtain for us and shows us that there's an even greater reality going on than the five senses can perceive. We need to be good at learning to view life here through the lens of eternal realities. You know, what's your daily experience been like this week? What's caused you the most anxiety or despair? Where have you grown weak in faith? Now, how would meditating on this vision of the Almighty on his throne alter your perception of those experiences? So in in response to seeing the eternal throne, that it's occupied, uh, the church should be a worshiping community. Uh, singing and living in light of who God is. Uh, but John's vision continues. As we move into chapter 5, the emphasis of the vision shifts. And so we look now at the lamb once slain, now worthy. Uh, the location is exactly the same. Uh, John's in this incredible throne room, but but the emphasis shifts. And now we learn that, that God on the throne is holding a book. And one of the angels thunders this question loud enough for the entire universe to hear. Who is worthy to break these seals off the scroll and open it up? Who is worthy? And, of course, if you've been a Christian for some time, you know the right answer to this question. It has to be Jesus, right? But that's not the answer that John gets at first. At first, there's, there's silence. There's no one able. So everyone's looking around, and no one is stepping forward. And in this prolonged, awkward silence, John begins crying, weeping loudly like despair. The universe falls silent except for John sobbing. So what's in that scroll and why the silence? The scroll must be the eternal plan of God to destroy sin and rescue his people from the broken universe. This is God's great rescue plan. Judgment and redemption, that's what's in the scroll. It's, it's all the promises of God from the beginning to accomplish his, his, purpose, his purposes and plans for humanity. So how do we know that's what's in the scroll? Well, remember uh, the promises of God. Uh, the promises of God from the beginning, he says to Eve that her son would crush the head of the serpent. He says to Abraham, his sons would be more than anyone could number he says to David that his son would sit on the throne forever and as the as the seals come off this scroll in the next several chapters of revelation we learn that these promises find fulfillment so God sends forth judgment into the world against all those who oppose him. And prestige is no shield. So everyone, all kings, presidents, prime ministers, the 1%, military dictators, everyone, if they've opposed God, they will be judged. And you see them in chapter 6 running for cover in the caves. And John says they're crying out, Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So there is judgment in this scroll. And yet, as the seals are broken and the contents of the scroll continue to be revealed, we see that there's also salvation. So after seal number six comes off, John saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language languages. These, these are the innumerable sons of Abraham. Abraham. Now standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then John goes on to say that these innumerable sons and daughters of Abraham will no longer thirst or hunger, but that the Lamb will be their shepherd and that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is all that is sad becoming untrue. This is salvation. And these promises have already begun to be completed in Jesus Christ. For us, we've experienced that beginning. And yet, uh, we are still waiting for their ultimate fulfillment. And if the scroll can't be opened, then God's plan can't go forward. And no wonder John weeps at the silence. This delay, this silence highlights that no one, Nothing in all of God's creation is able to accomplish God's plans for judgment and redemption. The silence says that we can't accomplish salvation on our own. It must come from somewhere else. And then Jesus steps forward. Jesus, the lamb, grabs that scroll, and that's another cue for the choir, and they burst into song again because Jesus is worthy to bring to completion all of the promises of God. This time, the choir doesn't bow toward the throne, but the choir bows toward the Lamb because He is every bit as much worthy of glory and honor as the Almighty on the throne. And consider this new song that they begin singing to the Lamb in verse 9 of chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Notice they sing how Jesus is qualified to open that scroll because of his suffering. Worthy are you to take the scroll because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. This is the song of heaven. Lyrics written by God himself and the key point of celebration in heaven. What makes John stop sobbing is that Jesus is worthy because he was slaughtered like a lamb. And at this point, the choir gets even bigger and all the thousands and thousands of angels join in in verse 12, singing again, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And finally then all of heaven and earth join in. The entire universe now joins this song of praise both to the Almighty on his throne and to the Lamb who was slain in verse 13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now let's return to those seven churches for a moment. They were called to be lampstands. They were called to be witnesses. And these are the truths to which they bear witness. The reality that Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, defeated death and came out the other side and now lives and reigns from the throne. And more than that, all who follow the Lamb by faith will also pass through death into unending life and indestructible joy. As one of the guys in our Bible study this last week said, Jesus has long coattails. We ride his success. You know, Those who hang on to him follow him through death and out the other side. So the song of heaven says of the lamb, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. The whole message of the Bible revolves around this central claim that in actual human history, Jesus died on the cross. But why is that claim so central? And why is it that heaven forever sings about the bloody slaughter of a lamb? Well, it's because the cross is what qualified Jesus to accomplish God's great rescue plan for humanity. Let's review the story. God, the almighty creator, designed humanity for perfect happiness. For everyone, there was to be sexual fulfillment in the context of pure, loving marriage. There was fulfilling identity as God's representatives in the world stewarding His creation. There was freedom from physical suffering, freedom from messed up relationships, freedom to pursue all the extensive reaches of God's universe. And ultimately, more than any of that, there was the joy of being rightly related to the Creator, having His view of things. But we have ruined it all. We have collectively said no to God's design for human happiness. Saying no to the creator is saying no to happiness. It's breaking all that's good. And so we have lost deep and permanent satisfaction, peace and harmony, freedom from suffering, stable joy. All of these things we have lost. And all that's left is death. So that humans now do the best we can with life, which isn't very good, and then we die. And that reality um, can bring fear and despair and, and should bring hopelessness. If all that we know is that we're headed for death um, and we don't know what comes next, then all that's left is fear. You know, if you were driving a car at 60 miles per hour and couldn't see out the windows or covered with mud, you would be frightened. And if you are headed toward death without knowing what comes next... You should be afraid. But Jesus gives us an exit strategy, a way through death out the other side. He died in our place instead of us as a ransom. He died to bring us back to God so that in the end, rather than crying out in sadness, we can sing out in celebration. Now, death can't do anything to you. As one author said, all that death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. So the vision of Jesus, the lamb who was slain, has two implications. That's the first one. Don't fear death. The gospel frees us from fear. But the second implication of this vision of the lamb who was slain is this. Don't stay silent. The gospel can free still others also. So Jesus, the lamb who was slain, died to ransom people for God from every tribe And language and people and nation. They are out there. And as long as the end is delayed, there are more people out there who God wants to bring into his throne room to join in this song so that they can be worshipers too. And he accomplishes that purpose, bringing more worshipers into the throne room through us, through the church. Again, we are God's lampstands, so we have to live with that eternal hope and love with a compelling love. Uh, Peter says in his first letter, you were chosen by God so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like the choir in heaven is singing about the lamb, we should be singing about the gospel. This incredible story that God created the world, but humanity rejected God and ruined creation and yet Jesus rescues both humanity and creation and so freedom is possible through faith in Jesus riding his coattails through death into the other side this is a story to sing about well how do we do this as a church well we do it in, in all the different places that we live and work and study and play we we could give all of our attention to attracting people to six five oh one Fox Road to this campus, uh, but in reality you know those who don't regularly go to church already it's that's going to be a stretch for them in a, in a society trending secular uh, not many people have a felt need to show up in church on a sunday morning so we we have taken a, a, a relational approach to this as a church, where we simply talk about Jesus in the places that he puts us. You know, we want to sincerely love our neighbors all week long, and not love them simply as a means to get conversion. You know, it's not like kindness is a, a price you pay to, to purchase their conversion. Love and kindness is simply who we are as Christians in response to the gospel. I saw a blog post this past week that suggested that the key to speaking about Jesus with non-Christians in our society is hospitality, uh, hospitality, loving others. You know, th- this is the opposite of xenophobia. Xenophobia is fear of strangers. The opposite of that is philozenia, love of strangers. Philozenia is the Greek word the New Testament uses for hospitality, It's loving others well, being good at loving and opening up our lives to those not like us. How can you do that this week? Let me offer three simple suggestions just to get your mind going. First, talk to God about this. Talk to God about this. I mean, pray that he would give you opportunity to do this. Pray that he would give others opportunity to do this. Ask God to draw more worshipers into his throne room. If all your prayers from this past week were answered, how many people would be in the kingdom? How many new people would be worshiping around the throne? Talk to God about this. Second, uh, talk to other Christians about this. Talk to other Christians about it. Maybe encourage someone else to go be part of a church planting team overseas or ask someone to pray for you as you speak of Jesus to others or, or follow up with someone who has asked you to pray for them like that. But talk about this amongst yourselves. And then third, talk to a non-Christian about these things. Talk to a non-Christian about the gospel. Maybe it's something as simple as asking them if they're interested in spiritual things. Talk to a non-Christian about it. And overall, in in response to seeing this vision of the Lamb once slain, now worthy, we should end up being, in in light of this vision, a a witnessing community, a worshiping community. And a witnessing community. We want the throne room to be as full as possible. So we're singing of the gospel now. So that others can sing of the gospel with us forever. We want God to get more worshipers. And witnessing to the reality of Jesus. Leads to worshiping God on his throne. So in response to the vision of God on his throne. We the church should be a worshiping community. And in response to this vision of the Lamb who was slain, we should be a witnessing community. And then on that final day, the experience of all God's people gathered around the throne will be eternal happiness, blessedness. So let's conclude with these words that John opened up this vision with in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and to keep what is written in it, for that time is near. Let's close in a moment of silent reflection, and after that, Levy will lead us in prayer.